Hey, Vetfolio Voice, welcome back. I was so excited to record this episode because I got the chance to sit down and have a one-on-one conversation with Dr. Armi Pigott and ask so many of my emergency questions. I've had the privilege of working with Dr. Pigott before at the NAVC Institute and collaborating on an emergency and critical care certificate course coming to Vetfolio soon. We talk about the course a little bit in this episode, and I'm sure you'll join me in being so excited to go through the course once it comes out. The course has actually taken a little bit longer in production than originally expected because Dr. Pigott is such a good teacher and wants to make sure that all of the information is as complete and usable as possible, and yeah, well, it got a little longer from what we originally planned. He's really just the greatest when it comes to talking emergency medicine, and I'm sure you'll take that away from our talk here today. Dr. Armi Pigott is originally from South Texas. He completed his veterinary degree at Western University of Health Sciences in Pomona, California, did a rotating internship at Pet Emergency Clinics in Ventura, California, and an emergency and critical care residency at Animal Emergency Center in Glendale, Wisconsin. Dr. Pigott's professional interests include emergency resuscitation, shock, trauma, and wound management. He's passionate about teaching emergency medicine and critical care medicine with a particular interest in using hands-on labs and high-fidelity simulation to train veterinary teams and improve patient outcomes. He's currently a veterinary emergency and critical care simulation education fellow at Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine, where he's helping to develop simulation-based training programs for both students and practicing veterinarians. In his spare time, he enjoys the great outdoors with his wife, three noisy beagles, and a Labrador retriever. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. Well, for this episode, I'm joined in person, which is always my favorite way to record these podcasts, with Dr. Armie Pigott. We've had many a good conversation about emergency medicine, and you're working on this incredible emergency medicine certificate. So thank you so much for sitting down with me at the end of what I'm sure has been a very long day. It's been a long day, but it's been a lot of fun, too. Good, good. We're recording at the NAVC Institute, and you've been, what have you been doing today? Uh, today I have been recording a lot of the pieces that we're going to put into the certificate course. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I've seen some of your micro learnings on Vetfolio that we've done in years past and they're so useful. You're such a good teacher that I can't wait to see this certificate come together. Thank you. All right. So let's jump into emergency questions. So one of the things you cover in the certificate is that kind of initial stabilization period. What do you feel like it's important that all practitioners and technicians know about emergency stabilization? You know, why is it important that we're all comfortable with emergency stabilization? I think that the big thing is that emergency cases show up in every type of practice, whether you are in a general practice setting, uh, emergency practice setting, obviously. But I mean, if you're in an all dentistry practice setting, patients still show up having weird emergencies uh, at weird times of days that the owner may not even perceive to have been an emergency, but we figure out that it's the emergency, right? And other times the owner knows it's an emergency and they show up at what might be an inappropriate place like their dentist, (laughs) (laughs) their veterinary dentist, or, you know, come into the primary care or there's not an emergency facility available for whatever reasons. So I think it's really important that everybody has at least some basic understanding of how to treat those emergencies and at least provide the life-saving interventions that can get them to someplace else if they're not where they need to be. 
That makes sense. I mean, you know, you referenced a veterinary dentist. You know, somebody might just they see the word veterinary and they're like, that's where I'm going. So that makes a lot of sense that we should all kind of just be have that basic level of preparedness. When I was on my ophthalmology rotation during my residency, we had somebody come in for a standard like a follow up ophthalmo appointment. The dog had been dry heaving. Uh, panting and pacing and dry heaving and was bloated and had a GDV oh, no. <laughs> and they like started like an hour and a half before and they're like well we have an appointment with the ophthalmologist in a little bit we'll just go to the ophthalmologist oh. it's a dedicated ophthalmology facility they're like um this is a GDV we need to get you transferred yes yes oh my goodness I'm sorry for interrupting you there this is one of That's my okay. favorite games like this this is terrible like sometimes I will watch like the vet shows on Nat Geo and Animal Planet and like my, one of my favorite games is like guess the diagnosis <laughs> and it's like, I have a problem. Oh, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, I know. I totally had a GDV at the ophthalmologist's office. That's crazy. Yeah. And the ophthalmologist was like, please leave. Yeah. Please. I mean, they were like, they were like, we should put a catheter in and give you some fluids and then send you, send you <laughs> to the emergency room. <laughs> that sounds like it was like my very first year out of school. I had a rabbit patient come in. I don't see rabbits, although I would like to. That's a whole nother story. But I don't see rabbits. And he came in and he said, I think the rabbit is choking on a piece of hay. And I was able to do enough to figure out this rabbit was not choking on a piece of hay. And he said, okay, so what do we do? And I said, take it to somebody who knows what to do with a rabbit because I have no idea. Yeah, totally. <laughs> What's wrong with my rabbit? No clue. Okay, so let's talk in the context of a private practice. Usually if we have an emergency come in, it's usually at an inconvenient time with a full schedule where you know we're juggling multiple different cases. So one of the things you talk about is triage. Can you talk about the principles of triage when we when these cases do come in? Sure. So you're talking about like a general practice setting, right. day practice. Okay. So I mean, well, in any practice setting, triage means to sort, right? And we want to sort out the patients that need to be seen first. We want to sort out the problems that they have. So we're going to triage them on multiple levels. And I always say that you know we think about triage as being oh the patient has showed up. What order do I need to see them in? And that is that is triage. But there's also, you know, when the clients call, that's when they ask, you know, hey, my dog is doing, you know, has been vomiting for three days. Do I need to come in right now or can I come in when I get off of work tonight or can I come in for an appointment next week? That's all triage. <laughs> you know, when we're trying to figure out, does this patient need to come in now or can it wait? That's triage. And then we also have triage when they first, you know, when they sh first show up, like what's your TPR? How is the patient cardiovascularly? That's triage. And then when I'm doing a physical exam, that's I'm triaging those problems, right? There's, you know, this patient is tachypnic, it's tachycardic, its pulses are weak. That's all true. I'm putting those all into categories in my head of where do those fit in? What am I going to address first? Okay. And, and that makes sense. And, you know, you bring up a good point of there's a lot of triage that goes on outside of the clinic. I always think of like our CSRs who have so much on their shoulders because of course they can come back and ask us, but it's, it's probably better that I always think about like, it's better they're answering the phone than me because I can come up with all kinds of different things that could be going on that probably aren't and it's probably better that you know somebody who's not in their own head spinning all these things up is talking to the client we're talking about you know an employee with varying levels of education and experience who really has a lot on their shoulders trying to talk to clients and determine what to tell them you know what is kind of a gimme answer versus what they really need to bring to us and say hey what's going on you know, so that's probably another role that would be good for this emergency certificate to understand some of this a little bit. Sure. And there's, and there's a lot of triage stuff in there. And then, you know, it also is going to depend on, again, like you said, on their level of education and their level of experience within the clinic, how much can they do on their own? And there's a lot of other resources out there, too. I like to teach keywords because, I mean, people who are, who are working in that CSR role, they may be customer service background trained, but not medical trained at all. Right. And so I think there's 
a lot of things for phone triage in particular, there's a lot of keywords like my patient, like anything around respiratory distress, anything around dry heaving in a sure. dog, <laughs> you know, seizures, active seizures. But there's nice lists and there's a lot of lists out there. You can find them if you do a, a quick PubMed search or a quick Google search for some of the literature. There's some good lists on triage, veterinary triage, and what should be seen right away and some good keyword lists to give to non-medical personnel who are answering the phone so that they don't have to come and ask us every time. Oh, that's such a good resource. I had no idea that existed. And honestly, I hadn't really thought about it in terms of like CSR training and stuff like that of keywords to be aware of. I feel like that could be something that's hugely helpful because sometimes, you know, we have a CSR who's been doing this for 20 years and, you know, they've seen it all. Yeah. Um, and, but other times, you know, it might be somebody brand new who's just starting on the phone. And so having that resource available to say, you know, if you hear these things, tell them to come in. That's good to know that that yeah. exists and a good thought to when it comes to training. So we talked triage. Let's talk exam. We've got them in the door. We've got them triaged. We've decided we need to see this patient right away. What are we looking for on our emergency exam? When I, when I teach my students, I usually talk about we're switching over from the classic internal medicine or classic day practice healthy patient exam where we go nose to tail. Now we're going in a really specific targeted order. We want to find some really key things. And so we teach ABC and so airway, breathing, and circulation. ABC is just meant to say, does this patient need CPR or not? <laughs> really, are you alive or not? <laughs> and as soon as I determine that the patient does not need CPR, I'm done with ABC. Everybody talks about, oh, the ABC exam, but that's all it is. Airway, breathing, circulation, are you alive? <laughs> uh, do you need CPR? Because if I need to start CPR, I need to start now. Right. right? Makes sense. And so if the patient walks in, no ABC, <laughs> right? We're done. <laughs> You're alive. <laughs> you know, if the patient's gurneyed in, but he can look around, no ABC. We's done. It's alive. So that we move on to the primary survey. And for me, a primary survey is a, a quick but fairly thorough evaluation of the patient's respiratory status, including a thoracic auscultation, the cardiovascular status, which is part of that cardiovascular, or sorry, that cardiac auscultation, thoracic auscultation, and feeling the quality of the pulses, looking at the mucous membranes, the capillary refill time, a very brief neurologic evaluation, and it's really centered around the cranial nerve exams and mostly around the pupillary light reflexes, the palpebral reflexes, and then if the patient is ambulatory, what's their gait look like? And it's just kind of an eyeball assessment of like, how does that look, right? Not a, not a run them up and down the hall kind of gait assessment, sure. if that makes sense. And then quick abdominal palpation. And that's really, to me, that's a pretty good primary survey. And then I can add on things like getting a temperature, getting a weight, if it's time appropriate, things like that. Sure, sure. That makes sense. And then is that neuro exam when you're looking at cranial nerves, like is that kind of playing to like level of consciousness? Yeah. So level of consciousness, especially if their level of consciousness is not normal, if they're depressed, if they're stuporous, I want to look at their ocular reflexes because that tells me a lot about are they about to herniate and do I need okay. to like address their blood pressure? Do I need to give them some mannitol or hypertonic saline, things like that? Or are they urinary incontinent and hyper reflexive and maybe they just need a nap. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right. Okay. So the patient comes in and you do that ABC exam and you determine that that's abnormal. What do you think that every practitioner, every technician should have kind of top of mind for emergency stabilization? So ABC exam, if ABC exam is abnormal, it means the patient's dead and needs CPR, right? Because we just said that that is what the purpose sure. of that is, right? So if they fail the ABC exam, they're dead and they need CPR. They're arrested, I guess we'll say, and they need CPR. If they're not arrested, then I think that the really important things are recognizing 
I think we all recognize respiratory distress. It sure. It has a pretty classic appearance. But the important moves to manage respiratory distress in the first five to 10 minutes, which mostly is don't stress the patient out, do some things to reduce their anxiety and maybe make them breathe a little bit better, give them some oxygen and see how it goes, right? So recognizing things around the respiratory tract, you know, managing those emergencies, recognizing shock, how to treat shock, I think is really important because there's not, if a patient comes in and decompensated shock, there's not a whole lot of time to be Googling and looking a whole lot of things up. We need to know where the first two or three moves are to initiate stabilization. Then there's time to look things up. But I think those are kind of the first few things. The first, I always think the first two to three steps of managing the common emergencies are the things that, that should be kind of reflexive. Oh man, we just opened up like a whole can of questions <laughs> that I now have in my head. Okay, so the first one is about respiratory distress. I think one of my biggest fears has been like just throwing a needle in a chest without doing x-rays. I finally had to do it. I did get x-rays. The dog was stable enough I could get x-rays. This is a pneumothorax after a hit by car. And I I had done like these thoracocentesis practices on cadavers. It is very unexciting on a cadaver. Like you just kind of put a needle in. You're like, that's it. Everything's going to be okay. You don't know. But essentially I did the same thing and everything worked out great and the dog did really well. But that's always been a big fear of mine. Can, can you talk to practitioners, technicians, veterinary professionals like myself who are like, oh my gosh, they're in respiratory distress. I can't take x-rays and I have to just throw a needle in a chest. So the first thing I'm looking for there is is that restrictive breathing pattern, right? That's where the chest and the abdominal wall are moving in opposite directions as they breathe. So the patient normally should take a breath in and the chest and the abdomen should both move outward away from the body, essentially together. All right. When they have a restrictive breathing pattern where the lungs are being crushed by something in the pleural space, which is the situation where you need a needle in the chest, then what we see is when the patient takes that breath in, chest moves out, but the abdominal wall gets sucked in. And vice versa. No, it's not a flail chest. It's not a flail chest. No, flail chest is where you have multiple broken ribs. So the ribs are broken at two spots on the same rib and multiple ribs in a row, creating a segment that moves in on the chest wall. Oh, okay. So, So the thoracic wall is a piece of the thoracic wall is moving inward when they breathe and create negative pressure outward when they breathe out and create positive pressure. All right. So a restrictive breathing pattern is just, we look at the, I like to look at the last rib from the dorsal aspect of the animal, if that makes sense. So if the dog, think about just to put it in perspective, if a dog is standing, all right, then I want to stand behind the dog and look directly like straight down on the dog, right where the last rib is and kind of along the abdominal wall. Right. And I want to see what you'll see is the chest wall and the abdominal wall moving in opposite directions. There's some good videos out there on YouTube. We can put some up on Vetfolio or on it on one of the websites. But there's some really good videos. I think that once you see it, it's 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 easy to see. But trying to explain it in words is not always easy. But what I'm looking for is that restrictive breathing pattern that tells me that there's a problem in the plural space. Okay. Okay. And that tells me that's that is how me as a as a criticalist, that's how I feel totally comfortable walking up and putting a needle in the chest without having any imaging. The advent of ultrasound being present in almost every room <laughs> is like has really changed that, right? Because now we can look for a pneumothorax, we can look for fluid, we can look for the gut up in the chest from the diaphragmatic hernia, we can look for all those things with the ultrasound on the stat table in 15 to 20 seconds and answer that question too. So we can do some imaging first, but if you don't have access to that, that's okay. If you've got that restrictive breathing pattern, you've got a pretty good indication to put a needle in the chest. And so 
I know that is a scary thing. I know it's, um, it's something that you get more comfortable with with time. And if I think that if you are in a general practice setting where you're not doing it on a regular basis, I think it probably always remains a fairly stressful thing to do, especially if you can't do imaging before you put that needle in there. But the reality is that if you use a good, a good technique to put a needle in there to do a diagnostic synthesis, you're very, very unlikely to cause harm, and you're very, very likely to save a life if they needed it. Right, so if they didn't have a pneumothorax, they didn't have some kind of fluid accumulation in the chest, and you put in a 20 gauge or an 18 gauge needle into the chest, and you didn't get anything out, the odds are, even if you did touch the lung with it, the odds are very, very, very small that you're going to cause any life-altering injury to that patient. Might it get a small pneumothorax? Yeah, it might. Might it get a big pneumothorax? In really, 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 really rare cases, it can, and it's definitely happened to me, but it's unlikely. All right. But if that animal needs it, you're going to save its life. And so risk-reward, if you have an indication to do it, I think it's worth doing. And I think that makes sense. I will say, like, doing it with a butterfly made it much less scary, where I was like, this is a tiny, short needle. And it, it was a fairly big dog. And thinking back about it, like, you know, certainly I have, you know, put needles in the chest in cats with pleural effusion and things like that before. That wasn't quite as scary. I guess this one, because it was, like, a more emergent patient. But you're right, like... I knew what I was putting my needle into and that I was okay, but I will tell you, like, you know, when, you know, I've got this emergent patient whose color was not amazing, like, we were headed in a bad direction, and then all of a sudden, like, the air started coming out. I was like, oh, my gosh, I did it. it was, totally. And like you said, and, and he stabilized instantly. It was a huge difference right yeah. away, and it was it was really rewarding. And so what you're saying makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate you calming my fears. Hopefully that is helpful to somebody else out there, not just me. I hope so too. The other question that it opened up was there's, I mean, shock is a whole, you know, there's a whole can of worms there um, in terms of like the different types of shock and, and things like that. So, you know, to say like the first few steps in shock, I'm like, but there's so many kinds of shock and all this. Like my thought is, okay, IV catheter and, and lots of fluids. What are kind of the first few steps that we should be aware of in, in patients that present in shock and how do we identify that in our patients? Sure, sure. So I guess let's start with identifying it, right? So the things we're going to look for are physical exam changes are the, are the big keys, right? So the four most common types of shock, there's more, but the four most common types of shock that we're going to encounter as veterinary professionals are hypovolemic shock, obstructive shock, distributive shock, and what did I forget? Cardiogenic shock. So those are the four most common types that we're going to encounter. All right. And so hypovolemic shock, obstructive shock, and cardiogenic shock, they're all going to present with pale mucous membranes, a prolonged capillary refill time, and poor peripheral pulses. And obstructive. Okay. Remind me again what we're talking about when we're talking yeah. about obstructive shock. So obstructive shock is where there's, so so in all of these things, right? So I guess let's back up and talk about what is shock, right? So at, the, at its very core, shock is inadequate ATP production at the cellular level. And in the vast majority of the cases that we can actually have any sort of impact on, it's going to be because of inadequate oxygen delivery to the tissues. All right. And so then we can start branching out from there for all of these different reasons, right? And ultimately what it's going to come down to is what's altering their cardiac output, what's altering their oxygen content of their blood, okay? And so if we think about these four major types of shock, the patients who are hypovolemic, they don't have enough fluid in the tank, right? So if you think we have, you have the, the pipes, which is the blood vessels, you have the pump, which is the heart, and you have the fluid, which is the blood, all right? So where's the, where's the problem, right? So the hypovolemic patients, their problem is they don't have enough fluid in the tank. Maybe they have been hit by a car or they have a ruptured splenic tumor and they're hemorrhaging, 
somewhere. And so they need blood, right? Other patients, maybe they have severe pancreatitis or they're having an Addisonian crisis and they're massively hypovolemic because of ongoing losses from vomiting and diarrhea, but they become hypovolemic from that. Uh, so they need crystalloid fluids to replace their volume loss. Okay. So what kind of fluid have they been losing? Let's put that kind of fluid back in. That's how we're going to treat that. Obstructive shock is where we don't have enough blood getting back to the heart. So the blood is getting pumped out. What blood is available is being pumped out to the body, but then it can't get back to the, back to the heart. And the most, the most common things that are going to cause that in our veterinary patients are going to be a GDV, all right, because okay. the stomach is big and bloated and it's pushing up on the vena cava and it's obstructing the vena cava so that the blood can't get back to the body. Okay. Or, sorry, the blood, the blood is um, not being able to return to the heart because of the vena cava obstruction. Okay. And so the answer to obstructive shock is remove the obstruction. So in this case, trocharize or pass an orogastric tube to de- um, deflate the stomach. Okay. okay. And then okay. obviously finish resuscitating them, take them under surgery. If the patient has a tension pneumothorax, right, your patient who had a pneumothorax that you were talking about, that patient has so much pressure inside of his chest that it starts to collapse the vessels, collapse the radiation with the heart. And so, again, that's obstruction to venous return. And so what's the answer? The answer is tap the chest, remove that pressure, and now we can have normal floor blood flow, right? So those are the kinds of things that cause obstructive shock. The other one that we can see that there's a lot less that we can do about is a pulmonary thromboembolism. Sure. Uh, and that one, that's the really crummy one because the, there's not a whole lot we can do about it. I mean, there's thrombolysis and things like that access to that is extremely limited. Mm -hmm. The efficacy is very poor. The complications are very high, all that kind of stuff. We can try and manage it and see what happens. But the other types of obstructive shock, those we can actually do something about. GDVs, pneumothoraces, tension hemothorax, those kinds of things. So that's obstructive shock. We need something's blocking return of blood flow, like blood's going out, but something's blocking off blood flow back to the heart. Okay. And that's what I was trying to figure out. I'm like, what is going to be, you know, create such pressure that's going to collapse Venous return, and that makes sense, like a GDV or a pneumothorax yeah. or a hemothorax. Sure. Those okay. kinds of things. All right, that makes sense. So distributive shock is where the capillary beds are inappropriately vasodilated. The two classics are going to be sepsis and anaphylaxis. All right, so the capillary beds, not the not the arteries and veins, but the capillary beds are massively vasodilated, and the blood's just kind of pooling there, right? And so these patients are kind of, they're relatively hypovolemic because if you think about it, the vessels dilate, now there's more volume contained in sure. the capillary beds. So giving them a fluid bolus will help at least initially, but the most of the time to, to really fix the problem, we need to make those capillary beds constrict again. So that's going to be giving them a vasopressor. Like for sepsis, norepinephrine is the drug of choice. For, epi- for anaphylaxis, epinephrine is the drug of choice. It's a vasopressor. It also inhibits further release of histamine from all of the inflammatory cells that are dumping out all their histamine and causing anaphylaxis. So epinephrine for anaphylaxis. And then Cardiogenic shock is is kind of the complex one of the group because that can be the heart is not squeezing hard enough, so their contractility okay. is poor. They can have some kind of an arrhythmia, which is either a, tach- a severe tachycardia, a severe bradycardia, or some other disorganized arrhythmia that's preventing them from having good cardiac output. All right, and then some of those are going to be complicated by concurrent pulmonary edema from congestive heart failure. Sure, and so you have to address all of those problems in the, in the cardiogenic shock patients. That was hugely helpful because I will tell you that as far as the different kinds of shock, I feel like I had kind of a background like rattling around in my head, but that kind of brought it full circle. Can I ask you to clarify one point? You yeah. said with the distributive, obstructive, and hypovolemic, they're presenting with pale mucous membranes. Distributive has with, pale uh, mucous no, membranes? Distributive does not. So, okay. so okay. distributive is going to have usually kind of brick red mucous membranes okay. and a fast capillary refill time because 
in the other three types of shock, hypovolemic, cardiogenic, and obstructive, those patients have peripheral vasoconstriction because of, of their body's attempt to overcome their shock and, and survive, right? So they've got vasoconstriction. That's what's making their mucous membranes pale. The distributive shock patients, their capillary beds, their mucous membranes, mm-hmm. their capillary beds are vasodilated, so they look like brick red, okay. right? And there's essentially no resistance to return of blood flow. So in those vasodilated patients, when I push on the, on the mucous membrane to push the blood out of the capillaries and then take my finger away to see how long it takes for the color to come back, it comes back almost instantaneously. Sure. Because they're so dilated, there's like no resistance. It just floods back in right away. And the other three, they're vasoconstricted, right? Okay. And so there's a lot more resistance when I push on the mucous membrane and then I take my finger away, there's a lot more resistance to the blood flowing back in. So it's a lot slower to regain it, whatever color it had. Sure, sure. Okay, that makes sense. That's where I was confused because I knew you listed three kinds of shock and said they would have pale mucous membranes and I thought distributive was in that list and I was like, wait a second. So no, that makes a lot of sense. If it was, I misspoke. Uh, you probably said cardiogenic and I, okay. I breezed by it. <laughs> I'm totally guilty of that sometimes. <laughs> uh, no, that was really helpful. And and so, you know, that makes sense as far as like being able to kind of having the types of shock at your fingertips so that you can identify what's going on and then determine how to treat it. So like you mentioned with hypovolemic, do we need crystallate fluids or do we need, you know, blood colloids, whatever it is. And then you talked about epinephrine and norepinephrine. If we, if we don't have norepinephrine, can we reach for epinephrine? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. And that's, if you're, the norepinephrine is something that's probably available in most emergency clinics and in most referral level hospitals, but it's not something that I would expect a day practice to stock. There's no way I could imagine that you could move that off your shelf without just wasting a lot of money on it. So that's kind of, yeah, I would say, you know, most of the practices that I've been a part of, you know, pretty much just epinephrine, but as long as we can reach for epinephrine in place until we can get them stabilized, then, and it sounds like cardiogenic, like, you know, with what you were describing my brain, I was like, you know, dopamine, dobutamine, and, you know, some of these different things that we might not have. So it sounds like, you know, stabilize as best you can. And then probably those are referral cases. And there's a lot of options there too. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do in a, in a typical general practice, right? I mean, most general practices have some kind of anesthesia monitors that involves an ECG, right? So we can get an ECG on these patients and see if they have an arrhythmia. All of us can count a heart rate. doesn't matter if you have zero equipment, you can still put your hand on the chest wall mm-hmm. and count a heart rate, right? So we can look for a, a really severe bradycardia. We can look for a really severe tachycardia and have some idea of if that's contributing. If we could put an ECG on them, we can look and see, do they have, what kind of arrhythmia is this? And then make some logical choices about antiarrhythmic drugs if that's what's appropriate, right? If you have ultrasound, you can pop the ultrasound on and just look at the contractility. You don't have to be able to do all the fancy measurements and mark one eyeball look at the at the heart and just see, is it squeezing away for all it's worth or is it just barely fluttering there? You know, most of us can just eyeball that, you know? So if you have if you have the ultrasound. And yeah, I mean the drug of choice, if they're in if they are in cardiogenic shock because they have poor contractility, the drug of choice would be dobutamine. But if you don't have that, if you've got pemobendin and you don't think you're going to kill them by giving them a, an oral med, because some of them are so stressed, they're too sure. fragile to take oral meds, you can absolutely give them some pemobendin. Okay. Dogs. Okay. Let's, say dogs. Still, Let's not do it to cats. Sure. Dogs. <laughs> and they'll still absorb it even though they're in cardiogenic shock? They may or may not. Maybe, maybe not. But they, sure. but, uh, they may or may not. But if, you have, if that's the only option, I would certainly give it. Because, I mean, so what? Like, so the absorption takes three times as long as it would if they were, like, they still get some of it, right? And it's, some is better than none in terms of trying to improve their cardiac output. I feel like I'm... I can't wait for this certificate, like just this podcast episode. I'm like, do you have three hours? Because <laughs> this is always what happens when we talk, Army. Okay, so, you know, we've mentioned ultrasounds, ECGs, you know, initial exam. 
uh, what initial diagnostics do you feel like you know we should have available, have a comfort level with, be able to interpret kind of right off the bat for these patients? I feel like that's a loaded question. It is a loaded question <laughs> because there's different there's different access to diagnostics totally. depending on the clinic. But absolutely, um, you know, I guess uh, maybe not even in an ideal world, but I don't know. Can we approach it from like a, like a top down approach? Like if you have yeah. all these things, great. If you don't have that, you know, are there things that we can do in, in its place? I think there's a, a, yes, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of monitoring equipment out there and a lot of diagnostic testing out there and everybody's going to have a level of, of access, right? And it may be that you have a glucometer and a stethoscope and you can do so much with that. Like, like you can do so like. exactly. <laughs> I mean, even more, you can do so much with that. So don't knock it. I think if you have access to, so I work in tertiary referral emergency medicine. For me, my point of care labs that I'm going to get on a patient who comes in that's, that's very cardiovascularly unstable are going to be to get a venous blood gas, a PCV in total solids, a glucose, and a lactate, and some some measurement of kidney function. And that could be an azostic, that could be a creatinine measurement, whatever, whatever I have access to depending on the practice that I'm in. With that initial database plus my physical exam data, I can do a ton of stuff for my patient. Then you can add on from there, right? All If they're unstable, I've already got them hooked up. I'm sh- like, I would have hooked them up to their cardiovascular monitoring. So I'm going to get an ECG on them. I'm going to get a pulse ox on them if they'll tolerate it. Again, these things that are really unstable, especially if they're in respiratory distress, if they're fighting, I'm increasing their body's oxygen demand and they already can't meet it. And so anything that makes them fight is not worth having. So, and that includes the oxygen line in their face. If yeah. the, if putting the oxygen line in their face is stressing them out more than just sitting there like huffing and puffing, fine. Take the oxygen line away because if I'm, they're already not meeting their oxygen demand and if they're flailing away, I'm increasing their oxygen demand and I'm not helping them at all. So that's kind of my feeling on those kinds of things. So within the limits of what they'll tolerate, I would like to have an ECG. I'd like to have a blood pressure. I'd like to have a pulse ox. And with that data set, I can do so much for a lot of patients. Sure. No. And, and I think, you know, that's one that, that most of us would have the capability to do. You know, you hear about like acid base status and stuff like that. And I'm like, I don't have access to, you know, acid base. And I would, I would venture to say that probably, a, you know, a lot of general practices don't. And, and honestly, I will tell you at this point, if I did, I don't know that I would know what to do with it. So, you know, I operate a lot off of what you just listed. And so it's good to know that, you know, that'll give me a good picture to where I can treat my patient. And the other thing I found is just our patients are incredibly durable in in so many cases. Like, you know, the things that I've stabilized in way less than ideal conditions are amazing to where, you know, just give it a shot and you're not going to make it worse. Like, I mean, mean, like you have, like if, if, especially in really limited, the client is really limited in their resources or if you're in a practice that is a very limited resource practice, give it a go, you know, really just give it a try. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing what some of these patients can bounce back from. And sometimes they don't and and it's sad, but you know, at least we can say we gave it a try and and gave it everything we had. Yeah. All right. So our patients come in, we get our diagnostics done. We do our initial stabilization and things are going well. You know, they're starting to respond to treatment and we've got that initial stabilization done. What kind of monitoring do we need to do in these patients? So I'm a big fan of using Kirby's rule of 20. Um, I was trained by Dr. Kirby, so I, almost mandatory to say that, but no, <laughs> just kidding. Kirby's Roll 20 is a fantastic monitoring tool. It's a checklist of 20 items that are really great things. And it's not just for when things are going well, it's also for when things aren't going well, because it's a list of like, what did I forget? And most of the time when things aren't going well, I can find what I have missed within the checklist. 
And so you can use it simply as a checklist and just work your way down the list uh, and say, you know, so did I check the glucose? Yes. Did I check the albumin? Yes. But the real power in this thing is when we use it as an expectant monitoring tool. And what I mean by expectant monitoring is if I have a really sick patient, then I know that this patient, I know that critically unstable patients and critically ill patients are going to have complications. They're going to have secondary, you know, secondary things that happen because of what their primary disease is. And the more of those that I can anticipate, the better job I can do taking care of this patient, right? Because some of them I can prevent, like if I can anticipate that it might happen, I can start taking steps to prevent it, right? And other things are things that I can't prevent, but I might be able to mitigate how bad it gets if I can catch it happening early and start to address it when it starts happening, if all those things make sense. So like, for example, if I have a patient with a diabetic ketoacidosis, I know their potassium is going to drop, right? I want to over-supplement them too early, but I also don't want to wait until the potassium is one and then be like, oh, I'm a little bit behind, right? So uh, I can expectantly monitor that knowing that it's going to drop and when it does start to get below a threshold, I can start to be more aggressive with my supplementation. There's, you know, I mean, lots and lots of uh, scenarios like that. And so the anyway, the Rule 20 is most powerful when we use it in that regard and we say, okay, glucose is one of the one of the things on the rule 20 so did i check it yes or no was it normal yes or no but then more powerful than that is was this patient what's going on with this patient do i expect this patient to develop a problem or is this a patient that has a high likelihood of developing a problem so let's say a parvo puppy right maybe it's got a normal glucose now but is it going to have a normal glucose in 12 hours i don't know right but i can be watching for that and make sure that i'm uh, addressing it if it happens so, so I can make my plans around that. The other thing it lets me do is talk to the owner yeah. <laughs> and prep the owner, right? Because it just gives me a framework to think. It's like, okay, I think this patient may need glucose supplementation. I think this patient may end up needing a vasopressor. This patient may need some kind of oncotic support. And I can kind of make plans for those. I can have trigger levels for all those things. And I can make a monitoring plan to make sure that I'm catching it when it's early and I'm not having to play massive catch up later. And then I can go to the owner and say, okay, this is what I think is going on to your patient. These are all the things that I'm worried could happen. These are the things that I'm doing to try and either prevent them or if they're not preventable to monitor so that when they do start to happen, I can intervene early. And this is what I think it's going to mean for your pet's hospitalization, for your bill, for all these things, right, that are actually really important parts of the conversation. So it's a, it's a really powerful tool if we use it as more than just a yes or no checklist. That makes a lot of sense in being able to, you know, prognose and have those expectations because... Gosh, you, you know, you're right. The bill is a hugely important part of that conversation. And I know there's so much more to it than that. But that's huge. And being able to talk to the owner and tell them what to expect because, you know, you'd, you hate to get so far in and then, you know, you run out of resources and you just can't continue to treat. But, man, if you could, they could have done well if you can anticipate some of that stuff ahead of time and adapt and, and one, be able to communicate with the owner, like you said, about what to expect, you know, and prognose that patient and, and prognose the bill and, and some of these things. And then also, I would imagine intervening early is going to mean less total, you know, intervention overall. That's uh, the hope, Keep for that sure. patient more stable. So kind of to wrap up here at the end, emergency patients can be scary to those of us in private practice who don't see them on a regular basis. So what would you say to practitioners or technicians, you know, any veterinary professional who is just like, I just don't feel comfortable in these situations. I'm really scared of what's going to come in the door emergently. 
So I think that's normal to feel that way, first off. And I think that some of these emergency patients are scary for us who work in emergency medicine, too. Like, they're really stressful. Like, we I don't have know if that makes me feel better. Patients, yeah, but <laughs> I mean, but like, it's normal, though. I think, you know, sure. we have we have these patients. And yes, I am much more comfortable than most people who don't work in emergency medicine putting needles in chests and doing all those kinds of things. I do it on a daily basis. That's normal. If you ask me to have a conversation about vaccine choices, I'd be like, um... Yes. <laughs> Rabies. <laughs> Rabies. I know that's, that's kind of where my knowledge ends, right? So it's all, about, it's all about what you do and what your comfort level is, right? By the same token, like we said at the beginning of this podcast, these cases show up everywhere and we need to have at least a, a basic framework. I think that people who are doing things like listening to the podcast, who are going to conferences and attending CE to just get a little bit more comfortable with just the basics of emergency medicine, you really just need the very basics to be able to, to do really good by the patients. And the other thing that's, I think, so important to remember is that the best person to do something for the patient is often the person who's standing in front of them. We know statistically that the first medical contact that most critically ill patients have is going to dictate a huge piece of their outcome. If they have a reasonable intervention, they will have a much better outcome, shorter hospitalization, less morbidity, mortality, all like just add up things, less, less infection, like lower infection rates, all the things, right? If they have just a reasonable first medical contact with wherever they showed up first, it's so much better. And so what I always want everybody to kind of think about is that sometimes the best person to do something is the one who's standing in front of them now, right? Maybe I have more comfort doing a chest tap and more experience doing a chest tap than you do. But if you're the one who's there in the middle of the night with the patient or in the middle of the day with the patient and it's a long transfer or even a short transfer and it's got a pneumothorax, it may not survive that transfer, but you can do that tap. You're the best person to do that tap right? It doesn't mean that like you need to send it somewhere else. If you can do it, that's okay. I think that's a really powerful message to say, you know, that that first medical contact plays such a big role. And I think it's reasonable huge. is a bar that many of us can meet. So totally. I feel comfortable <laughs> saying I can be a reasonable medical contact. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm no boarded, boarded criticalist or anything like that. But, you know, to say, you know, I can cover these basics. And like you said, pursuing that that education to make sure that we we at least have those initial steps down to where you know we can maybe not feel comfortable but at least feel reasonable about being able to see these patients when they come in yeah I want to wrap up here by pointing back to the certificate. I'm so excited for this to come out, this whole program. I'm sure for anybody listening to the podcast, you can hear what a great teacher Army is. He and I have sat down and had multiple conversations. I took your course at Institute. Just a fantastic teacher. And so I, there's, I know there's going to be so much to be learned by this program, and I'm so excited that you're putting it together. Thank you for you know spending your time doing this. For, for those of us like me out there who, you know, we want to do a good job by our patients, but it's not something that we do every day. No, thank you. And I I had a lot of fun putting it together. So I hope it's really helpful. Well, I hope everybody had as much fun with that talk as I did and hopefully got some of your emergency questions answered. Dr. Pygott, thank you so much for joining me. Such a fun talk. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.